Ladies and gentlemen, we are gathered here today to mourn the loss of my sanity. Welcome to yet another episode of Summary and Synthesis, the self-isolation edition, where pajamas are the new business casual, the extent of my travel is only between social media channels, and the gather sign above kitchen tables has finally been outlawed. Yes, something good can come from all of this. Fair warning, although still working, I've had limited human contact this week, which as an extrovert has created its own challenges, so I will probably be quite punchy, very blunt behavior, possibly outrageous claims. To summarize what I'm saying, this should be at least mildly entertaining. Here's another fair warning. This is going to be mildly honest. I'm dealing with a lot right now, as we all are, and creativity is the best form of expression I have. There will be moments where I will relate some of the readings we experienced this week to what I'm experiencing right now, what we're experiencing right now. That's okay. I need this. It's kind of like therapy and I hope you enjoy the ride. Some moments will feel more serious, some will be fun and lighthearted, but all in all, I want this to be a timestamp of how I really feel right now. So. There you have it. Today we'll be wrapping up Don Norman's The Design of Everyday Things and then taking a critical look at personas. I am your host, Emily Kuznar Laird. Welcome to Summary and Synthesis. Don Norman's Chapter 5. Is it human error? No way, it's bad design. Errors happen all day, every day. Why? Because most people are incompetent. Just kidding, no. It's because of problems with design. System errors and human errors are approached differently. When an accident occurs, we employ root cause analysis to get to the bottom of it. If it's a system error, we fix it. If it's a human error, we blame and punish, but may not fix the error. Why do people error? Norman explains because the designs focus upon the requirements of the system and the machines and not upon the requirements of people. Norman will also state, and this is just so painfully relevant to what we're going through right now, there's a lot of pressure to push ahead with work even when an outside observer would say it was dangerous to do. Now my husband might say that my fourth glass of wine sure looks like a bad idea. From my perspective, it's the only thing keeping me going. Now. Our 6 a.m. alarms roll around and hindsight respectfully indicates his observation and warning should have been more highly regarded. Norman will discuss the concept of deliberate violations, which we are all guilty of. We prop open locked doors, drive company vehicles on too little sleep, and we absolutely go to work sick. I go to work sick, or at least I have in the past. This is terrible behavior, but it's the design of our working system. Not everyone has sick time which I'm confident in saying this will change. But because not everyone has sick time, we deliberately violate requests to stay home when sick, thus continuing the spread of a viral pandemic, destroying our own economy and infecting the elderly. Yes, bad design has dire consequences. Norman will introduce us to two types of errors, slips and mistakes. A slip occurs when a person intends to do one action and ends up doing something else. There are action-based slips and memory lapse slips. An action-based slip would be 
heading straight home instead of stopping at the gym like you planned because you forgot. Mm-hmm. Sure, Karen. A memory lapse slip would be like you go to the store and you buy just a weird amount of White Claws for a no-laws White Claws party, right? Only to forget to invite anyone because you forgot. Not like you drink 20 plus White Claws by yourself. That would be um, alcoholism. I... Anyway, mistakes on the other hand occur when the wrong goal is established or the wrong plan is formed. Mistakes are classified into three categories, rule-based mistakes, knowledge-based mistakes, and memory lapse mistakes. In rule-based mistakes, an individual has appropriately diagnosed the situation. Hypothetically, they spend too much money on candles from Bath and Body Works because they are unquestionably the best candles on the market. I'm not going to order candles online. How would I, I mean, how would they, how, how would they smell them? Okay. So we've assessed that this is a problem, right? So what's our solution? Okay. Maybe we decide we're only going to go to Bath and Body Works for non-candle products. Okay. That's fair. But my husband, on the other hand, would say that uh, from observational experience, this does not actually work. There will still be candle purchasing because they were on sale. Um, they were a great deal. Uh, the house does smell amazing and I'm tired of defending my excellent choices. A better rule to live by would be no Bath and Body Works trips. <laughs> Alas, I'm only an erroneously riddled human with poor spending habits. In knowledge-based mistakes, the problem is misdiagnosed because of erroneous or incomplete knowledge, such as when a new virus maybe enters a previously unexposed population and you lack the knowledge of how it's transmitted or how it engages with various hosts, thus leading to ever-changing circumstances, inaccurate treatment, and potentially flawed safety precautions. Finally, memory lapse mistakes take place when there is forgetting at the stages of goals, plans, or evaluations. Funny example, I had a professor during my undergraduate who had been terminated 12 years prior, but through a memory lapse mistake, the director of the English department forgot to send the termination notice to HR before he himself exited the university. So this professor was never actually fired and proceeded to only assign a midterm paper and final paper because he had signed out years ago, which is why he'd been terminated in the first place. Errors, both through slips and mistakes, occur as we've reviewed for a variety of reasons. One major cause of error is social and institutional pressures. To understand human error, Norman explains it is essential to understand social pressure. In light of the current state of affairs in the United States, when originally drafting for this episode, I went off. I really ranted. I will summarize my rant now into a short statement. When you create a society who looks down on people for being sick, who blames and punishes individuals for recognizing error, thus disrespecting concepts such as judoka or pokeyoke, who allows ego and fictitious rank to forgo the utilization of resources such as checklists or maybe hazard planning committees, you design a society and a system littered with error, mistakes, slips, missteps, and unhealthy decisions. But remember, it wasn't human error, it was bad design. So how do we design for error? 
Norman offers some ideas which include understand the cause of error and design to minimize those causes. Do sensibility checks. Does the action pass the common sense test? Please remember common sense is a prerequisite to the individual performing these checks. Make it easier for people to discover the errors that do occur and make them easier to correct. Don't treat the action as an error. Rather, try to help the person complete the action properly. Interestingly, Norman points out novices are more likely to make mistakes than slips, whereas experts are more likely to make slips. Confidence breeds carelessness. It's a very fine line. The study of errors provides us with several design lessons for both preventing errors and for detecting them before they occur. Adding constraints to block errors, you limit what the user can do to limit errors. The undo features, or as Norman describes it, perhaps the most powerful tool to minimize the impact of errors. And let's be totally honest here. If life had a control Z or a command Z button right now, we'd have worn that damn thing down to a fine dust. Design can also aid errors through confirmation and error messages, which have saved me many times. Sensibility checks. And finally, minimizing slips by, as Norman explains, ensuring that the actions and their controls are as dissimilar as possible, or at least as physically far apart as possible. Norman's chapter five also discusses the Swiss cheese model of accidents, whereas within each stage or moment of an action or process, there's a hole like Swiss cheese for error to get through. This is interesting because we rarely are involved in an accident where one thing went wrong. We've heard this referred to as a comedy of errors, right? A situation so riddled with problems is comical. It's why right now when I decide to take a break and climb out of this hole of anxiety and sadness I reside in, I look around at the state of things, I just laugh how utterly ridiculous all this is because it was avoidable. <laughs> okay, I'm stopping myself again. Remember, I, I need this. As we wind down chapter five, Norman reminds us good design is not always going to cure everything. Sometimes people are just plain at fault. Remember when Patricia Sullivan and Beckon Encounter Experience wrote, computer researchers have often seen users as problems, as error machines, as weak links, or as ergonomic challenges. Well, Pepperidge Farm remembers that, and so do I. Humans are riddled with error. We make mistakes and slips due to deliberate violations or social pressures, but also because some people are dumb. This can be helped through resilience engineering with the goal of designing systems, procedures, management, and the training of people so they're able to respond to problems as they arise. It ensures design is continually being assessed, tested, and improved. Automation is a wonderful thing. Calculators can solve extensive mathematical problems in moments. Humans can use calculators to solve problems quicker than they themselves can solve. They can also type 80085 to spell boobs. Where machines are static, programmable, humans are more unpredictable. Humans are imperfect, but machines through their rigid structure and limited creative problem solving capabilities are error prone as well. But when used together, they're a powerful binary. At the end of the chapter, Norman shares a few key design principles for dealing with error. Put the knowledge required to operate technology in the world. Use the power of natural and artificial constraints, physical, logical, semantic, and cultural. Bridge the gulf of execution and the gulf of evaluation. 
Chapter six, entitled Design Thinking, focuses on the notion of solving the right problem. Norman begins the chapter by divulging another one of his rules, never solve the problem I'm asked to solve. Honestly, his wife must be so frustrated sometimes. Imagine saying, hey, the light bulb in the hallway burnt out. Can you change it? 20 minutes later, you're hearing power tools and he's digging into the wall to check the wiring or dissecting the bulb to discover its faults. I guess technically he says it's a consulting role, but it's way more entertaining for me to think this applies to literally his entire life. But design thinking and furthermore, the concept of solving the right problems are important, especially in design. Designers often use the double diamond model of design, which honestly sounds like blueprints for a ski slope. In this design approach, you use design research tools to explore a wide variety of solutions prior to converging upon one. Finding the right problem, diverge, converge. Finding the right solution, diverge, converge. The human-centered design process, on the other hand, uses four different activities, observation, idea generation or ideation, my students are super sick of me saying that word to them, prototyping <laughs> and testing. These activities are cyclical and repeated over and over and over again until the desired solution is created. In discussing the observation phase of human-centered design, Norman recommends the applied ethnography technique, whereas you experience the user's actual action of performing a task or engaging with a product in its actual environment. If someone uses a product specifically in an office setting, visit some offices. In an airplane, book a flight. In the shower, let's hope it's spacious, okay? Because I'm coming in. Go where the action is happening to see how the action is truly taking place. Norman will also dig into designers versus marketing. I'm in a weird paradox here because I work in marketing, but I'm a designer at my core. That's right, I'm a total hippie in a power suit, but Norman's assessment of designers wanting to know what people really need and marketing wanting to know what they'll actually buy is accurate. Oftentimes you design something to meet the varying needs of so many, but you market it using the most widely desired feature. Norman will get into design features and creating for population percentiles more in depth later in chapter six. Norman will also advise designers to focus on and design for activities people perform. He will also admit within chapter six that everything he just explained about design approaches, strategies, and procedures, yeah, it doesn't really work that way. And it doesn't. I've worked on design projects both large and small for businesses both large and small. I was once assigned to put together product display boards for a product pitch being given to Target for the next day. Yeah, it was a late night and no, there was no time for idea generation, prototyping or testing. Sometimes, honestly, a lot of times, you just have to get it done. It shouldn't work that way. Elongated processes for design, affording user research and product testing are the ideal. The reality is unfortunately, situations aren't often ideal. This takes us into the design challenges Norman discusses in this chapter, like products having multiple conflicting requirements. Product development moves through the process from design to engineering, then marketing, manufacturing is up next and on and on. Each group has their own requirement and discovers the design doesn't fit their needs. Design must also include those with special needs. So in doing so, universal design is best. Design things that don't exclude anyone. Ultimately, be flexible, as Norman states. 
Allow people to adjust their own seats, tables, and working devices. Allow them to adjust lighting, font size, and contrast. Chapter 6 rounds out with a discussion on the importance of standardization, one type of cultural constraint which supports the notion of universal design. One topic I've been really on my soapbox on lately in relation to standardization is universal charging ports for electronics. I do not believe charging ports should be proprietary. All devices should use the same charging port style with universal charging cords. Okay, it's far more sustainable. And honestly, it's bad design that this was never enacted. Although deliberately making things difficult can be a good thing, as Norman explains, examples being security systems or dangerous equipment. Finding the right charging cord to fit the port of a phone, headphone cases, handheld game systems, or power bank charger shouldn't be one of them. Charging ports shouldn't be a feature. They should be a universal standard. Now this concept of features will drop us right into Norman's chapter seven, design in the world of business. The realities of the world, Norman states, impose severe constraints upon the design of products. Featureitis or creeping featureism, whereas a good product to stay competitive in the market, continues to add sometimes unnecessary and totally useless features. Sort of like how right now when phones are marketed based on their camera capabilities. Good design, Norman explains, requires stepping back from competitive pressures and ensuring that the entire product be consistent, coherent, and understandable. Design limitations come with rapid technological change and slower social change. Technology changes rapidly, Norman explains. People and culture change slowly. Norman will give an interesting background on the QWERTY keyboard while using it as an example of slow change. We'll never see a revised keyboard because users already know how to effectively use the QWERTY keyboard. In fact, even keyboards will one day become obsolete to talk commands. It feels like that's already happening. In chapter seven, Norman will also introduce us to radical innovation and incremental innovation. Incremental innovation starts with existing products and makes them better. Like mobile phone battery life. It's the best feature. I want a phone that can handle my exorbitant amount of texting, social media browsing, and absolute trash TV watching with a battery life like my Nokia brick from the early 2000s. Oh baby, with a battery life like that, I could binge watch a full season of Real Housewives and some 90 Day Fiance while still maintaining an absolutely unhealthy amount of judging people's social media posts. Now, radical innovation starts from scratch, often driven by new technologies which make possible new capabilities. Radical innovation creates cause and effect. For example, the development of GPS satellites created a torrent of location-based services. These are especially handy right now in the form of curbside pickups and to-go ordering because we can't be close to anyone right now or go to restaurants, and yet I still need snacks. So Walmart Grocery, you beautiful, beautiful service. Thank you for ensuring I can still consume concerning quantities of both bubbly and LaCroix seltzer water, as well as tortilla chips and salsa during these troubling times. I love chips and salsa. I miss Mexican restaurants so freaking bad right now, okay? Anyway, 
Radical innovation is, as Norman will explain, what many people seek, but most radical ideas fail because they're new, they're different, and people enjoy the comforts of simple change, not radical. Norman also states within chapter 7, people often ask him to predict the next great change. Well, we're living in it. We will see a sphere of change come from the COVID-19 experience we're currently in the middle of, or I should say, the beginning of. We will hopefully see better allocation of resources toward our medical supply stock, to changes in social or public contact. At my local grocery store, the cashiers are now behind plexiglass walls. And I'm wondering if this is going to stay this way when this is all done, or at least for a while afterward. Our response to COVID-19 has been radical, which is one of the many reasons why this has been so hard on most of us. Like the QWERTY keyboard, people enjoy sticking with what they know. And right now, everything we know or have known seems wrong. Things that used to seem wrong, social distancing ourselves, drinking alone, using finger guns as greetings, disgusting. These are all coming back into play as the right way to do things. Sometimes redesign is radical and flips everything on its head. Ultimately, let's wrap up Norman, which I'm sad to be doing, but everything must come to an end. Change brings some fundamental consistency, but it also brings change. As human beings, we're social creatures, and with that comes action. Action that must be repeatedly designed for. Although technology evolves and we will evolve with technology, probably into cyborgs, we'll still engage with each other. Thus, fundamental principles of interaction remain permanent. I loved this book. I read chapters five through seven at least three times a piece. I didn't really want it to end, both because I enjoy reading Don Norman's work, but also because it's let my mind focus on something other than everything else. Books like music become synonymous with our current place and time. Just as the Smiths' How Soon Is Now will always remind me of late nights in the design lab as an undergraduate, and Elvis Presley's Can't Help Falling in Love will always remind me of my wedding. Don Norman's The Design of Everyday Things will always be part of my escape for when things in March of 2020 weren't always as comfortable in the real world. This week, we also dove into personas, examining two pieces. We'll start with Matthews, Judge, and Whitaker's. How do designers and user experience professionals actually perceive and use personas? Let's summarize. Matthews, Judge, and Whitaker are going to examine personas with a study on how user-centered design practitioners use and perceive personas in industrial software design. Within their study, Matthews et al. is going to discover reasons why designers don't use or don't enjoy using personas. Some of these reasons include personas are abstract, personas are impersonal, and personifying details are misleading and distracting. The authors are going to offer us a history lesson of personas, which to summarize, the concept of personas was introduced by Cooper, expanded upon by Pruitt and Aldlin, and further developed by Nielsen. Personas are defined as a hypothetical archetype of an actual user, describing that person's goals, aptitudes, and interests. 
So here we go. The authors conducted interview sessions with participants in their study, having them evaluate two types of personas. Recall, their research goal was to understand how participants use and perceive personas in their work. Their results showcased three categories participants could fall under. Persona champion, persona moderate, and persona pessimist. The author's research showed designers were not using personas to design. Personas were instead used for communication. In their study, the authors found that the individuals who were persona champions were formally trained in the use of personas and tended to be persona creators. These individuals were more readily able to make connections with personas, whereas the other individuals surveyed just honestly didn't connect with personas as an approach to the design process. The individuals that did connect with personas, well, they were the creators of them, the individuals who were able to actually perform or review user research. So personas for them became far realer, more reliable. Although the authors found personas were not used as heavily for design, personas were still a valuable tool for communication, especially with people outside the user-centered design theme. All right, so up next is Chapman and Milhelm's The Persona's New Clothes, Methodological and Practical Arguments Against a Popular Method. Let us summarize. All right, Chapman and Milhelm examined the persona's method and considered claims personas can reflect empirical data serving as an information source for development teams. The authors will argue there are significant methodological and practical difficulties for personas. Chapman and Milhelm explain the personas approach claims three advantages to traditional user research. These include the ability to easily engage teams to think about users, the possibility for designers to extrapolate from the personas to make design decisions, and the freedom from problems that arise when a full spectrum of user data is presented, such as paralysis or inappropriate generalization. The authors will evaluate claims of the empirically grounded personas method as a tool for communicating user information. The most serious limitation of the personas method is that it is difficult or impossible to verify that personas are accurate, the authors state. And yeah, this is difficult. It's the same sentiments we get from the designers in Matthews et al. study and the notion that they just don't trust personas. They feel fictitious or generalized. But this notion will come from a lack of involvement with customer research. Our authors here are going to go on and state their key point that there is essentially no way to generalize from a well-specified persona to a population of interest and thus no way to say anything about the users of interest. They'll go on to state, there is no way to distinguish which characteristics of a given persona are indicative of users and which are irrelevant. Personas are also said to be a conduit for information. However, that cannot be asserted unless the information content is determinable. The final problem with personas is validation and theory testing. Persona literature leans on interviews and ethnographic research to validate personas. Two significant issues the authors find with personas are how personas are reconciled with other information and who is responsible for interpreting them. 
That is a challenge. When you work with diverse teams and diverse people, their interpretations of things vary greatly. It's a weird mini version of telephone. Each person is going to hear a different message. As authors explain, different teams draw different inferences. A hold up, spoiler alert, Our authors are not convinced personas are all that in a bag of chips. They're seeing some major flaws, honey, in the method claiming to be a source of data for development teams. The authors are then going to grace the personas community with a satchel of gold in the form of potential idea sketches for future research, which include develop sets of real and fictional customer data and personas based on each set. Educate a team with personas and ask them inferential questions about user behavior. Assign multiple teams to design the same product where some teams use personas and some don't. And literally, yes to that last point. I would watch a show with that premise. In fact, I want to see some form of top chef use this idea, whereas half of the chefs are introduced to the judges and the judges watch them cook. Well, the other half cooks in front of three trifold poster boards with pictures of the persona judges with information about their goals, aptitudes, and interests. <laughs> and my gosh, I don't know if that's self-isolation talking or not, but that literally sounds so good to me right now. Netflix, take note. All right. So that's going to wrap up our main readings from this week. Okay, guys, the end is upon us. Okay. Oh, well. That was a poor choice of wording, but let's synthesize. We're going to once again see this continued thread of the value in user testing and user research this week as we explore Norman and personas. We began our viewpoint of user-centered research for technical communicators with the notion of social constructivism. Centered on the principles of meaningful interaction, meaning-making and social constructivism comes from meaningful engagement. We've seen this concept championed by both Bewley and Krug as we explored user experience research. Krug specifically talked about the notion of the pitfalls of creating an average user, something we hear echoed in this week's reading on personas when the designers studied felt like personas were abstract and impersonal. Patricia Sullivan's beckon encounter experience comes to mind and her charge for user researchers to truly engage and encounter those being researched. Norman's chapter six will also detail this connection between designers and the group they design for. Remember, Japanese teenage girls are different than Japanese women, who are again different than German teenage girls. To understand a user, you must engage with the user. Adhere to applied ethnography and watch your user where they're using your product. Focus on action, the ways in which an action is performed within a user's setting. Our last episode also touched on this notion within the concepts of St. Amant's scripts and prototypes, Gibson's affordances, and Norman's discoverability. People are not machines. Once upon a time, and hopefully someday soon, we left our homes. We went to Mexican restaurants sushi bars, breweries, baseball games, concerts. We got in our cars each morning and suffered through long commutes to get to our office, where we suffered through even longer days with frustrating coworkers and bosses who didn't always appreciate the effort we made. 
The band Cinderella in 1998 said it best with, you don't know what you got till it's gone. On the weekends, we'd pack up and head to our cabins. We'd day drink, then hop in the boat and cabin hop all afternoon visiting friends, playing bag toss, coob, and ladder toss. Then we'd round it all out with whiskey, a campfire, and stories under the stars. That's the human experience. We as individuals have likes, dislikes, loves, heartbreaks, devastation, and hope. Like Norman's chapter 5 explained, we have social pressures which come at us from all angles. Our parents, peers, teachers, co-workers, bosses, partners, spouses, children, mistresses, baby mamas, baby daddies, who cause us to make mistakes. Yeah, some of those were a little funny to think, but they're true. We are flawed and imperfect. We make errors, slips, and mistakes. Sometimes we make them through deliberate violations. When we as humans get a virus, we don't call IT. We have an experience where we go to a hospital. We encounter medical staff and we engage with them so that through social constructivism, there can be meaning making through mutual interaction. People are not machines, and so there is action involved through cognitive thought and decision making. Thus, we cannot be generalized effectively as a persona. Thus, we must, as technical communicators, recognize the power of human action, engagement, and encounters, and audience involved through inclusion, user research, and testing. The power of observing human action. Krug and Bewley first gave us blueprints. Johnson, Sullivan, Zodaway, and Salvo supplied us with arguments supporting the need for usability and user testing. Successful design is bred through understanding who we are designing for. The designer may understand what people want, and marketing may understand what people actually buy. But at its core, we must understand both. That's why Norman's chapter six points out the value of both design and marketing within creating products for people. It's why St. Amant offered us scripts and prototypes and Gibson recognized research and proclaimed the notion of affordances. We are not machines. And so there is a place of understanding that must happen between human and tool, between action and designing for that action. User-centered research is in the center of this sphere. This has been Summary and Synthesis. Thank you so much for listening. Please stay safe and remember, this too shall pass.